It's good to see all of you this morning. Uh, We're heading and transitioning into our summer series. We're going to be working through the little tiny uh, book of Ruth. And uh, some of you might be asking the question, I thought we were in Luke. What's uh, what's Ruth all about? And and things were finally starting to get good. Why would we cut that off and and head into Ruth? And and, uh, the the truth is, all you have to do is look around. You can kind of see there's... uh, some gaps here and there, and, and that's just what summer is. It's, there, there, there are times of vacation and times of breaking of routine, and so we want to be sensitive to that and just uh, head into a narrative. Narrative sections are things that you can kind of pick up and, and take along, and uh, there's good nuggets of truth that will be found uh, with each uh, group of passages that we will be working through. The book of Ruth is towards the beginning of the Old Testament. So Joshua judges Ruth. It's, it's one of those little books that you're going to miss if you're turning too, too quickly. So if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find Ruth on page 222. I would encourage you to open that up so that we can follow along together. There's something about getting into the Old Testament that is good for us. Um, if you've grown up in a church... Uh, you'll probably be very familiar with the New Testament. That's where a, a lot of the, the sermons that we hear, they come from the New Testament. Not a whole lot of sermons come from the Old Testament. And the, and the truth is, the Old Testament is, is hard sometimes. The Old Testament is distant. And so as we work from the Old Testament, we look at God's story in working through the lives of those who, who live in an Old Testament era we come to realize that God is the same. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the truths that were were relevant to those people uh, so many thousands of years ago are relevant to us. And that's the goal, really, to help us understand that the unchanging God has an unchanging message, and that unchanging message meets a group of individuals with the truth of the Word of God, and and it ministers to our hearts no matter what era that we're living in. And that's, that's really the goal. We're going to see in the book of Ruth the testimony of God's mercy and grace to an outsider. And for those of us in this room, the vast majority of us, that ought to be an incredible encouragement. For, for all intents and purposes, Ruth had no business enjoying the benefits of God's favor. She was a Moabite and uh, from a From a Mosaic law standpoint, she was cut off from the temple. She was cut off from worship. She was cut off from the covenant people. And here she is. Not only welcomed in, but we see that Ruth is going to stand as this incredible, dynamic person of faith. This Abraham-like faith is just exuding from Ruth. And as a result of her faith... God will not only draw her into the covenant community, but he will make Ruth an integral part of the line of this future Messiah. The Savior, Jesus, will come through the channels of history that will lead to the root of Ruth and Boaz. God's faithfulness in using this faith-filled woman to to not only enjoy the presence of God for herself, but to be the conduit, really, of of this faith for her future great-great-grandson, David, who will be a man after God's own heart. This morning, as we come to 
the text in Ruth chapter 1. Let me just read this first verse for us, and it will kind of lay the context of where we are in history. We find, in the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons, in the days when judges ruled. The verse preceding Ruth chapter 1 in the book of Judges, the final verse in the book of Judges helps to marry uh, the time of the Judges and the time of Ruth together where we find in Judges chapter 21 verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. We're going to trace the results of no king in Israel, no spiritual leadership in Israel, and how that led not only to the moral decline of a people, but it led to catastrophe in the life of this man, Elimelech, and his family. It says, in the days, this is Ruth 1.1, in the days when judges ruled, there was famine in the land. So not only was there no king in Israel, there was famine in the land. And that famine takes two parts. I want to look at both. The, the first that, that leads to the second, the spiritual famine of the people that leads to a physical famine on the land. Where are we in the history of Israel? Let me just catch us up for those of you who may be unacquainted with kind of the, the history of Israel. It, it, it began with two people, Abraham and his wife Sarah. And they had a son named... Isaac, very good. You guys are, 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 are really with me here. So the, the promise went through Abraham and Sarah and then through their son, Isaac. What was intended, God promised to Abraham and Sarah that he would make of them a great nation. Well, this great nation would start with one, with Isaac. The promise would go through Isaac, who would also have two sons named Jacob and Esau. Very good. But the promise still would, would go through one son, not through Esau, who was the older, but through Jacob, who was the younger. Jacob would have 12 sons. And these 12 sons, because of uh, the number of descendants that they would have, would kind of look to that family head, and they would be designated a tribe. This group of individuals, this tribe of individuals, who would look to a common head, a common ancestor, a common father, as it were, and that would be the, the, the son of Jacob. And the 12 sons would be 12 tribes of Israel. Why Israel? Well, because Jacob's name would be changed. He would wrestle with an, the angel of the Lord. And, and during that wrestling, that angel of the Lord would give him a new name, Israel. Which means, wrestles with God. So, Jacob has a son. Twelve sons, but there's one son that's special. Who is that special son? Kids. Joseph, fantastic. Joseph is that special son, and he's kind of set apart from the rest of his family, and uh, all the brothers know that he's special. Everyone in the community knows he's special because of what? What does he get that kind of sets him apart, makes him special? He has a coat. You guys are, you guys are fantastic. Tracking with me. He's given this coat, and, and that really makes his brothers mad or happy. 
mad. Very, you can preach this message, fantastic. So Joseph is singled out. And because his brothers are so upset with the way that their father has singled Joseph out, they decide, we're going to kill this guy. We don't want to have to compete with him anymore. We don't want God, uh, our father's special attention to rest on him, so let's, let's kill him. Well, one of the brothers decides, no, let's not kill him after all. Let's do something better so that the guilt isn't on our heads. Let's sell him into slavery. So you've watched the movie. You know that they sell Joseph into slavery, and he goes down to Egypt. He becomes a slave in Egypt, and life doesn't go very well for Joseph at first. It's very hard, but after a while, there is a need for Pharaoh to have a dream interpreted, and Joseph is able to interpret that dream, and then he's elevated to number two in all the land of Egypt. A famine will hit the entire world. And because of that famine, now the brothers that have been left in Israel make their way to Egypt because Egypt was, was the only place where there was food. And as the course of events would have it, and the, the providence of God in putting and placing Joseph there instrumentally, the people of Israel, his 12 sons and all of their kids and their wives, come 70 individuals in all. This nation is beginning to grow. And while they're in Egypt for the next 400 years, this, this nation of Israel will grow to outnumber the people of Egypt so that those who are in Egypt become very nervous about these Israelites who are in Goshen overcoming them and overwhelming them. And so what we find in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, is that a new king would rise over Egypt who did not know Joseph and he would enslave the people again. He would put them to work. He would make their lives hard. So the people cry out for a deliverer, and this deliverer is none other than Moses. God will raise up this deliverer. Moses will be raised up. He'll lead the people out of Egypt into the wilderness. They'll wander in the wilderness for 40 years before they're able to go into the promised land. Moses will hand over leadership to Joseph. Joshua. Joshua will be the individual that God will use to lead the people into the promised land. And once Joshua dies, the spiritual famine begins. We find that for us in the book of Judges chapter 2. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt they went after gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. The, the death of Joshua led to a spiritual famine in the land. This progression or cycle of wickedness that started with this first generation 
after Joshua and continued this moral decline among the people for the next 400 years during the time of the judges. So that by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, this summary is written across the pages of the scripture. Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sin always follows this course. It seems small, little compromises that happen, but over time, that small deviation will lead to you being miles off course, miles away from God, and that is what happened for the people of Israel. To use an illustration from geometry, a little geometry lesson here, forgive me. For those of you in the back, it's probably almost indistinguishable the difference between the two lines that are on this protractor. It is one degree. One degree in avionics, if you're a a pilot in this room, you'll know this, this principle of the one degree. One degree off course in 60 miles leads to you being one mile off course. And so if you were to start flying a plane from New York and you were moving your way to Japan, by the time you got to Japan, you'd be 112 miles off course in the middle of the ocean, running out of fuel, ready to crash. The next slide will show six degrees. It's not much more. But if you are just off by six degrees flying from Columbus and your destination is intending to be uh, San Francisco, you're going to find yourself actually in Los Angeles, which could be good or bad depending upon where you want to be. Sin always follows this course. It doesn't seem so bad to begin with. Slight, subtle compromises over the course of a life, lead to totally being off track. And the course that you set for yourself and the course that you set for the people that you love will not only lead to your own spiritual demise, but will lead to the perpetual demise of the next uh, people in your legacy. Don't give in to compromise. The The further you walk down the road of compromise, the further it will lead to death. There was a spiritual famine in the land, but there was also a physical famine in the land. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, as we find. Famine, by the way, is not a fringe detail of the story. And the significance of this famine is magnified by the the situation in which this story is set. We find that there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went out to sojourn in the country of Moab. Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. It provides another clue as the state, to the state of affairs in Israel. That even when the house of bread has a famine, you can understand how serious things have become for a nation. This famine was not to be misunderstood as a circumstance. It was not to be misunderstood as an issue of, of climate change. It was meant to be understood as a direct result of divine judgment from God. 
Not only do we read in Leviticus chapter 26, but also in Deuteronomy chapter 28, that God is instrumental over the weather, over famine. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commands and all his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat, with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze. And the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The famine in the land of Israel was not a coincidence. It was a a result of divine judgment. But any judgment, any punishment that God will bring to his people is not intended to destroy them, but is intended to lead them back to forgiveness, to lead them back to relationship, to lead them back to himself. Because the God who is faithful to punish is the God who will also be faithful to forgive. And that's the point of the judgments and the disciplines that God will bring. God was faithful to punish his people. God was faithful to give them a physical famine as a result of the spiritual famine they were facing. And and that was to help them understand that just as faithful as God would be to judge, he would also be faithful to forgive. It was a signpost. Look to me. Trust me. Ask me for forgiveness. And we find in Leviticus 26, that is exactly the, the call If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But I will, for the sake, their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. In the sight of the nations, that I might be their God, I am the Lord. And that's the point. That God was king over Israel. He was the God over Israel. He wanted to call them back to understand the significance of what was true for them. God was calling them back to himself. But there was no king in Israel. And as we'll see... In verses 1 and 2, there also was no king for Elimelech. There was no king for Elimelech. Let me, let me point this out, read this for you, and then we'll die then. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. There was no king for Elimelech in spite of several truths and privileges that he had afforded to him. First, in spite of his heritage, there was no king for Elimelech. 
in spite of his heritage. We find from our text this morning that he was the son of Judah, which means that he was a descendant of Abraham. Elimelech was no random character. God had promised Israel a king going all the way back to Abraham. Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Several, a couple generations later, when, when Jacob sits his kids down, these 12 sons of Jacob sit down in front of him at his deathbed, and, and now there is a promise that goes now directly to Judah. In Genesis 49.10, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall the obedience of the peoples. The future king would come through Judah's line. But this promise of a king was never to be overshadowed by the fact that God was presently king over his people. In the time of the judges, When God led Israel to victory because of the leadership of Gideon, the people come to Gideon and said, will you be king for us in Judges 8.23? And Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord himself will rule over you because God is king. Make no mistake. And several years later, when the people want to appoint a king through Samuel the priest, they come to him in 1 Samuel 8, 4-7, say, All the elders of Israel gathered together and, and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. <clears throat> and Samuel prayed to the Lord, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Then in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 12, And when you saw that Nahash the king of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. God was king over Israel already. It was up to them to acknowledge that fact. And Elimelech was unwilling to commit himself to trusting in God as king and and unwilling to to believe that God had a plan for Israel that he was going to carry out in bringing a king and establishing a king over his people. Elimelech, in spite of his heritage, refused to acknowledge God as king. But he also refused to acknowledge God as king in spite of his name. We find in verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech. And this is by design. Elimelech means God is king or my God is king. This is the only place in the entire Bible where this name shows up. Not only for this specific individual, but for any individual in all of the Old Testament, this name will only show up here in Ruth. It continues to strengthen this theme. It's not by coincidence. So whenever Elimelech's mom would call him by name, or when anyone on the playground would would call Elimelech's name, they would say, hey, God is king, God is king, God is king, come here. And they would establish the truth of the fact, the matter, that God was king. Every time they said his name, they would speak this truth. 
Elimelech should have known more than anyone in Bethlehem, more than anyone in Israel, more than anyone in the entire world, Elimelech should have embraced the truth that God was king. But he refuses to acknowledge. He fails to lead his family into dependence on God as king. Instead, he chooses the route of convenience and contentment and security. He fails to acknowledge God as king in spite of his heritage, in spite of his name, and in spite of the promises that were given to the people in Israel. We find in verse 1 that he went to sojourn in the country of Moab. We find from verse 2 that they went into the country of Moab and remained there. This man from Bethlehem moves to Moab because of the famine. Is that wisdom? Is that prudence? It's certainly convenient and it certainly leads to a measure of security. But the, the land of Canaan was officially designated the promised land for a reason. It was a place for them to remain. A place for them to abide. Exodus 13, 5, when the Lord brings you into the land, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, then you will enjoy the blessings, that I, all that I've promised you. Exodus 13, 20, uh, 13, 11, when you come into the land, Leviticus 23, 10, when you come into the land, Numbers 15, 18, when you come into the land to which I bring you, Deuteronomy 6, 10, when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers over and over again, the promise of God's favor and blessing would be on the people as they remained in the land of promise. So in moving outside of Israel, Elimelech not only abandons his people, not only abandons his heritage, which was attached to the land, but he abandons God. When when we choose to sin, every moment we choose to sin, in that moment we choose to abandon God. We choose to do things our way. Moab, as I'll show you on this map, is very close It's very close to Israel. It's the purple portion of this map. It it is so close, in fact, that you can see the land of Moab from the heights of the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. You can also see uh, Moab from uh, the heights of Bethlehem. But while it seemed close, it may as well have been a million miles away. A journey like this would have cut Elimelech and his family off from worship in Shiloh because that was the only place to which the people of Israel could worship God. In the temple, or the tabernacle, by the priests who offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. And so by moving himself and his family, however temporary he decided to be at first, turns into a remaining, a remaining The Moabites had a reputation. And Elimelech would have known their history. A people marked not only by idolatry, but their antagonism towards the people of Israel themselves. It not only made this place unlikely to sojourn, but also a place that was spiritually risky. This was no casual journey. And Elimelech would find his decision was catastrophic. He remained there as we find in verse 2, which means to possess or to be in a land. And by the way, that's what sin does. It invites you for a moment 
It captures you for a lifetime. It seems subtle. It seems slight. It attracts you by its appeal and then traps you, captures you. Because Elimelech failed in leadership, God allows Elimelech to die. Was this judgment? We find in Ruth 1.3, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. This word to be left is the Hebrew word to designate the, the bereavement process that happens that often and almost always in the Old Testament refers to wrath that is coming from divine judgment. They're left. They're surviving because of the judgment of God. Furthermore, to be buried in, un, in a foreign place was considered the ultimate punishment of God over his people. Short, abrupt, in sudden end marks this dramatic transition in the story that we see. In verse 1, it's his wife. In verse 1, it's his two sons. In verse 2, his wife Naomi. In verse 2, his sons Malon and Kilion. And now a transition happens beginning in verse 3. Elimelech, who is now the husband of Naomi. And she was left, and it was her two sons. You see, sin always has consequences. Even what was meant to be temporary He rejected faith in God and was subject then to discipline. There was no king in Israel. There was no king for Elimelech. And as you can imagine, there there was no king for Elimelech's two sons. It's pictured in two ways in the narrative. First pictured by their marriage that we find in verses 4 and 5, which says, "These These took Moabite wives... The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. These young men have now assumed the role of leading the household. Those who are now old enough to get married. Now that role of of, uh, managing the house will be deferred to them. They should have known better. They they should have understood that what has just happened to their father was a result of God's divine judgment. And as a result, they should have moved back to Israel, remained there, repented, and trusted in God to help in time of need. But instead, they settled down. Instead, they got comfortable. Instead, they decided to marry. Was that okay? Well, the text would lead us to believe that it was not, okay? And there are five reasons that we find in the text to help us understand the significance of what they did and how it was a departure from God's plan. First, the writer employs an unusual expression when he announces their marriage. There are two words in the Old Testament that designate marriage. And this designation for marriage is to lift or carry a woman, Although lexicons would seem to indicate that they're synonymous, closer evaluation helps you to understand that it almost always speaks of abduction. It almost always speaks of marriage that happens through force, of taking a bride from outside the clan or taking a bride from outside a country. This illegitimate marriage was described with this term to help draw attention to Uh, the fact that it was outside of bounds. Second, these marriages should be interpreted in light of the prohibition that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 7. 
Those who were in the land of Canaan who had given themselves to idolatry, God had said specifically, you shall not give your sons to marry them because you don't want your, the hearts of your kids to follow after their idolatry. These Moabites, although not listed specifically in this prohibition, would have been included because of, their, of them being given to foreign gods. The spirit of the law would still have been intact. Third, like Elimelech in his movement to Moab in the first place, these marriages to foreigners would be described as in Deuteronomy chapter 28 as a result of God's judgment or discipline on the people. Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 32 would say, because of these curses, the curse that will also come upon you is your sons and daughters will marry foreign people. It was a result of God's judgment that they're experiencing this curse. Fourth, Naomi's sons lived in their marriage for 10 years, and they were childless, which was always a work of the hand of God in in bringing to light his punishment on them. And finally, not only pictured by their marriage, but pictured by their death. They continued the pattern of their father. Thus, they experienced the devastating consequences of their reluctance to obey. This climactic blow is struck when both Malon and Kilion die. And the writer who is transitioning now to Naomi doesn't transition to the heads of these of the home, Malon and Kilion, because the transition happens so abruptly that he wants to help you understand how serious their sin was. God was not king in Israel. God was not king for Elimelech, and God was not king for Elimelech's sons. Is God king for you? Because God is king. The question that we need to ask ourselves in examining our own hearts today is, is God king for you? Have you pledged allegiance to your king? In Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, we find that there will be a day when Jesus will be acknowledged for the position that he's in. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus is king. Will you acknowledge him as king? King over your life. It begins at the point of conversion. It begins at the, at the place of acknowledging king over your life when you enter into relationship to him through salvation. As we find in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. God is king over Israel, whether they acknowledged it or not. God will be acknowledged as king at some point in the future, but will that begin for you today? Has there been a time at which you have bowed the knee? And made Jesus the king of your life. You have pledged allegiance to him. You have bowed your heart. 
You have come to the place of recognizing that he's the master. He's the one who calls the shots. He's the one who, who helps to order the activities and the priorities of your life. I would encourage you, we're going to be moving now to our time of, of baptism. And these testimonies of, of three young kids this week and testimonies of several more next week, you'll hear from their testimony this truth. You'll hear that they have acknowledged not only that Jesus is Savior, but you'll hear them acknowledge that Jesus is Master and Lord of their life. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help the, the glory of your character. The wonder of the fact that you are King. May that shine through our life. God, may the evidence of a life that is ordered by you and, and submitting to obedience to the king. May that demonstrate an attractiveness to the world, a, a gospel light that attracts the world, not just to ourselves, but mainly and mostly attracts them to yourself. May the city that is set on a hill, that light that shines this gospel picture, this gospel truth, may it have its way in the hearts of those that we interact with. Lord, may you be king for us, and may that kingship of our lives draw others to the same reality for themselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.